0: Man, Good, Good morning. How are you this morning? morning. All right. Hi, Alex. You like I uh, just saw you the first time or something. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 24. Uh, if you would, I, I ask this each week. I'm going to say it a different way. So I'm going to encourage you, open up a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there should be Bibles on the chairs in front of you. Luke chapter 24. In fact, if you borrow a Bible, it's on page 884. It's got the same numbers as my Bible, so there, there's, the, there's the cheat. You can get there quickly. Uh, I'm going to encourage you, and we'll start saying this over and over again when, when, re, when we read Scripture, you should be in Scripture. You should be reading along with me. And then I'm going to encourage you to begin taking notes, especially over this summer, as we lean into some things. Uh, well, everything we do on Sundays, obviously, we're leaning into God's Word. But we're going we're gonna to approach some books that many of you have never even opened before. Much like Revelation, the minor prophets are not often read or often taught on, with a couple exceptions, uh, but we're going to lean into them. We're going to do it with a, a very biblical reason, but sometimes not always a common reason. I see you guys, Pastor John is going to, uh, I forgot to take the kids with him, so I'm getting the big flag. So... If your kids are with you, we encourage them to stay. We think that kids learning alongside their parents is better. Uh, but if you want to go to a classroom, you're also free to go to a classroom. I think uh, we've been communicating with the families. I think we're going to take a break over the summer on that. So This, may be our, this might even be our last class. Uh, but we love our kids. We love our kids learning with our families. And so there they go. All right. Where were we? All right. So what we want to do is we want to approach, let me say this kind of oddly, We want to approach the minor prophets the way Jesus approached them, right? Maybe we don't think about that, but I hope that we can do that today. And so I'm going to encourage you not just to bring a Bible, uh, and, and if your Bible is digital, that's okay, as long as you're not getting other distractions, right? A paper Bible is not going to tell you that someone just messaged you on Instagram, right? All right, and a notebook, a journal, something to take notes with. I've been encouraging that since we began Revelation, and it became really important during Revelation because of the consistent themes and imagery, and we're going to see some of that in the Minor Prophets. Today, I want to come to you uh, out of Luke chapter 24, and I want to show you what Jesus says about not only the Minor Prophets, but all of the Old Testament. So here's a verse that we've been using in Revelation. Revelation 1, it says he made known, so this is Jesus made known, meaning Revelation, by sending his angel to his servant John who bore witness to, and this is, this is key, we use this over and over in Revelation, who bore witness to the word of God in this context, probably Old Testament meaning, right? To the testimony of Jesus, at minimum the teachings of Jesus in the Gospels, probably the entire New Testament is in view here, and even to all that he saw, the visions John had. So, the, so Jesus gave the book of revelation to john and the key to understanding it the old testament probably the new testament at minimum jesus teachings in the gospels you have to partner those with the visions to understand the book you with me the point being that christianity needs the old testament right that there's the first two-thirds of our bible that don't often get taught in many churches And Jesus says they're necessary, not just for revelation, but they're necessary. So here's our main idea for the the Old Testament. Jesus teaches that the law, prophets, and wisdom literature are all about him. So the first two-thirds of our Bible is necessary to understand Jesus and salvation. The first two-thirds of the Bible, the part that you read probably less of, Jesus says are necessary for us. And so starting next Sunday on Father's Day, not only are we doing cornhole, right? We're also gathering for worship. Maybe we should make that primary, right? But we're going to start a new series through the 12 minor prophets, the last 12 books of the Bible in your Bible, right? They're not often taught. They're not often read. They can be oftentimes confusing. And what we're going to say is that Jesus says they all point to him, right? We were going to call the series 12 Angry Men, but we didn't want to promote it that way, thinking people outside may not understand our humor. And so we're going to find or these Old Testament prophets are advocating for holiness among God's people, to be salvation, to be found in God. And that at times, for sure, as they spur the people on, you can feel their emotion in it. And I think that's a good thing. So Luke chapter 24, let's pick up in verse 1. It says, but on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb. They is uh, some of the women that had followed Jesus and were caring for his body. So we're picking the story. Jesus' body is in the tomb. He's been crucified, laid in the grave three days. It says, taking the spices they had prepared. So they go to care for the body. Jesus dies on a cross. They bring him down. They put him in a tomb. Now in this three days that this happens, where Jesus is laid in a grave or in a tomb, we say grave because that's what we think of, right? And, that, and that's okay. But this was a tomb kind of cut out of stone like a small cave with a rock in front of it. It was more like that. It was above ground, not underground, right? And so they would go and they'd have the soldiers that were guarding the tomb move the stone so they could care for the body. This is what, how they would care for bodies post-mortem, right? And the stone existed because there were lots of rumors about Jesus resurrecting from the dead. Now, ironically... There were rumors that non-believers heard and thought could be possible, and yet what you're going to see are disciples of Jesus not getting it today, right? You get the irony there. So Romans put a stone in front of the tomb so that no one could come and steal his body and then pretend that he had resurrected, because that's a piece of what his teaching message was. Again, non-believers doing that. Now, here's what happens. Now, we pick up our story. He's in the tomb, been in there for three days. He's been dead for three days. Dies on a cross, laid in the tomb. It is now the first day of the week. That's important for us because Christians, we gather on what we call the Lord's Day, the first day of the week. You see, in the book of Acts, we see the shift that they started to gather on Sundays instead of Saturdays like Jewish tradition, So they used to Sabbath on Saturday, and they would go to temple as Jews, but then Jesus resurrects from the grave on a Sunday, and then, 49 days later, at Pentecost, on a Sunday, again, the Spirit falls on the church, and this became the pattern for the church. When they were Jewish, they would often go to temple together on Saturday. They would gather as the church on the Lord's Day. That's why we call this the Lord's Day Gathering. Right, so on Sundays, the Lord's day, they would gather together. So it's now the first day of the week, Sunday. The women who've been caring for the body go to care for Jesus. Verse two. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, and they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground. The men said to them, "Do you seek the living among the dead?" Now, these men, likely angels, because the Gospel of John portrays them as angels speaking to Mary, that explain, or to one of the Marys that's there, and this kind of gives us that idea of that dazzling apparel, like they clearly look unique, right? And when angels tend to enter into human space, there's a lot of fear or intimidation. Just imagine an angel appears right here, it's noteworthy, Right? That's why a lot of them lead off with fear not, (laughs) right? Be comforted. It's okay. I come on behalf of God. So here's what happens. They have this experience, but it's the question that they ask them that I find to be interesting. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Now, of course, they know what's going on. Fine. But they ask it almost suggesting, or or maybe not almost suggesting, but they ask it suggesting that these women should understand something. Now, why do, they, why do the angels ask it in that way? Well, there's a couple reasons for that. One, Jesus had taught about it. He had taught about it so much so that Roman authorities and Jewish authorities knew he had taught about it and wanted to prevent it or prevent a hoax about it, right? But There's another way too, and that's what we want to focus in on today, that Scripture had always proclaimed a resurrection. All right, verse 6. He is not here, so they continue. He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you, while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered up into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day and on the third day rise, and they, the women that are there at the tomb, remember his, meaning Jesus' words. So remember what he has told what Jesus told you, and it says, they remembered his words. So Jesus had proclaimed his resurrection, while he was teaching. Now, you got to back out of this real quick and pretend you know nothing about Christianity. And if you're here and know nothing about Christianity, you're in a good place to hear this like the original hearers. What do you mean he's not here? What do you mean he rose from the dead? Right? If you heard this for the first time, if you had no framework for this, that's mind-boggling. Because as of history to date in all of life, everybody we lay in the ground is still there, except Jesus. And so you can understand this has never happened. Jesus proclaimed it in his teachings. It had been written about in the scriptures, but let's just be honest about how hard to understand it is. Right? I'm going to die, but it's cool. Give me three days. I'll be back. You're like, that makes no sense. Right? So you got to hear it like they heard it, but they should have a framework for this because God wrote about it in scriptures for thousands of years. Now, I want to just show you something real quick. And I just want to show you two verses. One is relevant to this topic. One kind of is a, a, a parallel. But Luke 4, this is Jesus at 12 years old in the temple. It says Jesus, So Jesus reads in the temple, right? He's actually reading from Isaiah. Jesus rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, it's about me. It's been fulfilled today. I love that he's 12, not 13, right? At 13 in Judaism, you go through a process and kind of become a man in their setting. Like, he's 12. He's just shy of that even respectable 13 in Judaism. And he's like, this is about me, right? Right? And I love that you get kind of a snapshot of the people that are there. They are fixated on him. As he says, today this has been fulfilled in your presence. Then a little bit later in Luke 22, this is the final week of Jesus' earthly ministry. So in other words, the final week, right as he gets ready to go to the cross, it's that week. He says, for I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. So Jesus bookends his teaching. So even early before he starts his earthly ministry at 12 years old, and then the final week of his earthly ministry life, you know, life, death, resurrection, right there, he's saying, listen, scriptures are all about me. They have to be fulfilled in me. Verse 9, back in Luke 24, and returning to the tomb, returning from the tomb, excuse me, they told all these things to the 11 and to all the rest. Now, Here's the, here's the audience. The 11 are the 12 disciples minus Judas who betrayed him, right? And all the rest are the other dozens at times, hundreds of people that surround him. There's kind of a, an identified 72 disciples that hung out that are just besides the 12, right? And so we're going to see some of them today, but there's a broader category of disciples. Disciple means student, These 11 are what we then start to see called apostles, and apostle means one who is sent. So they're given the message of Jesus and then sent to share it, and that doesn't mean that all disciples aren't sent to share that message. It means that they are given a unique authority to establish that message in what we would just say is the church, in the church in the first century. And so the women go back to share this narrative, share this story, share what happened to them, And share that, and they share it with the eleven, and with some of the other disciples that are there. Verse 10, now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna, and Mary the mother of James, and the other women, who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. So, you can imagine, right? You're hearing this like we went to the tomb where Jesus is buried, and angels told us he's alive again. Okay, you say praise God. They're saying, huh? Right? You know that little dog that kind of, huh? you know, like that. You know, like I don't under, That's what they're doing. This sounds like an idol. T- this sounds like gossip. This sounds like something you'd read about on Twitter. This doesn't sound right. That's what they're saying, right? Now again, I want to zoom out. They should have a framework for this. Not only has Jesus been telling them this, we just read those words a chapter prior but it's also been told for thousands of years in Scripture, right? So they should have a framework, but they're not real equipped with their Old Testament Bible, right? And they have the teachings of Jesus, but let's give them one, let's say they should know, but let's give them a break, because we're talking about dying and coming back to life that's new, right? <laughs> New's is an understatement, right? So there's not enough proof for them to believe yet. You see, this is the gospel message, right? That God will bring a Savior to the world. That message was proclaimed all the way back in the garden when sin entered into human history. It is proclaimed throughout all the passages of the Old Testament that this is the meta narrative of the Old Testament, that God will provide a Savior. In fact, the big cliffhanger at the end of the Old Testament is that this Savior, this Messiah they're waiting on, Messiah or Christ, same word, Hebrew or Greek, same word, Messiah is the Hebrew word, Christ is the Greek word, it means the anointed one or the promise of God. Well, at the end of what we would call the Old Testament, was we get to the end of the minor prophets, roughly 400 years before Jesus is incarnate or born in human flesh, there's no savior. That's kind of the big cliffhanger of the Old Testament is like, where's the promised one we've been waiting for? And there's this other one is like, are the people of God in the Old Testament going to even survive because they keep abandoning God? 400 years of silence goes by as promised in one of the minor prophets. We'll get there over the summer. These years of silence go through and then Jesus, right? We pick up the New Testament with the fulfillment of the biggest cliffhanger in all of the Old Testament. And then Jesus begins to teach on who he is from Scripture, and then give more understanding to them. So they should know. The gospel message is that Savior will come, and that Savior must die. That's what we just read in Luke 23. That's the passage that Alex read earlier in Isaiah 52 and 53. That the, the Savior, the Messiah, must come, and He must die on a cross. He must bear the penalty for our sin. You see, because when we sin, when we choose to disobey God then we, we turn and we go the other direction from God. But see, we, we, we live in this broken world. We can't, like earn, we can't just turn around on our own. See, we inherit sin, thousands of years of sin, billions of people who've just sinned on top of sin, on top of sin. That's why we live in such a broken world. And so we're born sinful, and then we sin because we're born sinful, and we add to sin, and we can't just go, okay, I'm done with that now. I'm going to earn my way back to God. You see, all of the religious systems give you a way to earn something. Christianity stands alone and says you cannot earn it. You can't contribute to salvation. You can't earn it. You're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You're not rich enough. You're not black enough. You're not white enough. You're not whatever enough. You're not smart enough. You're not, you're not good enough. Because you're broken inside. And so because you can't go up to God, God says, I come down to you. And so God becomes incarnate or becomes flesh in Jesus, the son of God, the second person of the Trinity becomes flesh. And then he lives a life sinlessly, overcoming all that we fail to, having victory of all the places we fail. And then he goes to the cross to pay the penalty for us. The entire narrative of the Old Testament focusing in on this, all of the sacrificial system back here pointing forward to that day where Jesus dies on a cross. And you can see Jesus lifted up on a cross, kind of standing between a holy God and sinful humanity, our mediator, paying our penalty, going to God on our behalf. Bringing us into the family of God and and that's the gospel message that if you now because of what Christ has done Live your life in Christ give all of yourself to Jesus That his death covers your sin That his death takes away your penalty That your penalty has been paid if you are in Christ But there's more see that would have been accomplished here by the end of luke 23 Your sin could have been forgiven. But then what we would be is these big piles of mess that God is not going to hold our mess against us. But rather, Jesus resurrects from the grave, having victory over this life, having victory, as we said in Revelation, over Satan and sin and death. So it is necessary to have a resurrection. It is necessary that Jesus didn't just pay a debt, but was victorious over the problem. That he came and had victory. And so here's what 1 Corinthians says about this. Paul writes, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, those who have died, have perished. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are all people most to be pitied. You see, without a resurrection, there's no gospel. Because without a resurrection, Jesus lied. And if Jesus lied, He is not our perfect Savior and sacrifice. And if He is not our perfect Savior and sacrifice, then we are left with our own works, and our works are sin. So we have nothing but Christ. And Christ, because He said, I will be back in three days, I will die and then resurrect from the grave, He must, or He can't be God. And so He overcomes it. So this is the gospel. This is the hope, is the resurrection. See, everybody dies. No one resurrects but Christ. Right? And so this is the gospel. There's no gospel apart from the resurrection. So Jesus is laid in a tomb for three days. And all of the disciples now are beginning to leave Jesus. And the the women that are caring for his body have accepted he's dead. And they love and care for him. But really, they're all shook. And they're all shook because they had expectations. Many thought Jesus was going to come and and displace Rome, kind of take over in a military or kingly way and displace Rome. Because that's what they wanted. Because they were second-class citizens under an empire. And so they built a Jesus out of what they wanted. Not out of what Scripture told them. So they missed that whole, again, passage that we just talked about in Isaiah the suffering servant, the the Savior, the Messiah had to suffer in order for us not to. Christ had to. And so we live in this tension with him in a grave, now resurrected, but they're not understanding that. And they're not understanding that, even though Jesus had told them that, because they hadn't understood what had been said by God for thousands of years. Back in Luke verse 12. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. So he hears this. He goes and runs. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, the burial clothes. And he went home marveling at what had happened. So Peter has a sense of wonder, but he's really unsure what to do with it. It doesn't say he goes home and believes. Actually, his going home leads to him kind of wandering away, going back to his old vocation of fishing. Right, the Gospels pick him up later having abandoned his calling. Then the resurrected Jesus speaks to him, calls him back. That's for another day. Verse 13, that very day, two of them, this is two of the not 11 disciples, but other disciples. So that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other all about all these things that had happened. And they were talking and discussing together while they were doing that. Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So here's the setting for today's kind of the thrust of today's passage. There's this journey between Jerusalem, where Jesus was crucified and buried, and then we know, but they don't yet, resurrected. And there are this group of disciples, these others that are not the eleven, and two of those disciples have left Jerusalem to go to a town about seven miles away called Emmaus. This is often called the road to Emmaus. On the road between Jerusalem and Emmaus, we have this story, this encounter that these two disciples have with Jesus. And so this is a, while they're walking, they're talking, right? And, and everything that they're ta- they're talking about what's taking place with Jesus. I remember the week that COVID, kind of the week that changed the world, right? The, back in March in 2020, I had, flown out of town with some other pastors, and we were gathering about some stuff, and it was almost kind of a joke on Tuesday. And then the first death in LA was Wednesday. And then Thursday, my flight home, I was one of a handful of people on an airplane, and we were calling. I remember texting with the elders like, hey, when I get, when I get home, like, we need to jump on. We jumped on a, on a FaceTime call together, because that's when churches started shutting down. That was all we could talk about. It was a bit of a joke. Like, hey, so if this gets really serious, what are you going to do? But we were all talking about it. It was was kind of that trending kind of story. And that's what's going on with these two disciples. They're talking about the death of Jesus. And the reason they're talking about it isn't just the fashion. Lots of people were crucified. In fact, Jesus wasn't even crucified alone. He was crucified between two other people. Gazillions of people were crucified. But the expectation of who Jesus was, was there. We thought he was the one, but now he's dead. Everything we thought now, we think were wrong. And so that's where they're, so they continue to talk. It's three days later, and this is all they can talk about. And Jesus kind of subtly, kind of low-key, draws up to them, is talking with them. They don't even know it's him, and they're having this conversation. Verse 17, and he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad, like this stops them, right? And their sadness is that Jesus is dead, they think, right? Verse 18, one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? (laughs) And he said to them, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, note the word, now he's a prophet. Mighty indeed and word before God and all the people and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. Now listen, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes. And besides all of this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Are you the only one who doesn't know what's going on? Have you been living under a rock? Jesus, do you not have cable? Are you not on social media? How do you not know this? This is about Jesus. We had all this hope that he was the one, but he's dead now. But right? we're sad because all the things that we thought were true are not true. We had hoped that he was the one, they say. 400 years have gone by, and we've been waiting on the promise of Scripture. We had hoped, we had placed all our hope that he was the one. Here's a note for you. No Old Testament foundation. Without a biblical framework of the Savior, watching Jesus die ended these two disciples' hope in Jesus, leaving them confused about their future. See, without a scriptural understanding, they interpreted things through their lens they thought was biblical but was not. And they, they misunderstood Jesus. And so now their hopes, their dreams, their understanding are kind of shattered. We really had thought he was the one, clearly he can 't be because he died, right clearly it 's not him, and we just we kind of thought this was it. He was the one to redeem the people verse twenty two Moreover, some of the women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying what they had even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went out to the tomb and found it just as the women had said but Him they did not see. Right? There's some proof, but not enough proof. There's not enough proof because they don't understand. Verse 25, and he said to them, now Jesus speaks, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe, listen, all that the prophets have spoken. Wait a minute. What did Jesus say? You didn't understand what I told you? No, wait, wait. No, he says this. O foolish ones, right? slow of heart, right? That you do not believe all that the prophets have spoken. He said, listen, this has been written about for a long time. How are you not understanding what this is about? Jesus now points back to the prophecy. All the prophets ended 400 years before Jesus was born. In fact, one of the prophecies that is fulfilled is that there will be 400 years of silence and that the next prophet to break the silence will point to the Messiah. That's John the Baptist who points to Jesus. right? And so this 400 years of silence has gone by. They see John. John points to Jesus. They place all their hope in Jesus. But then Jesus dies and they're like, how can this be? Like all our hopes are laid in a tomb. Now even the body's missing and there's some stories that can't be, and Jesus, how do you not know this yet? And he doesn't even rely on his teaching. How do you not understand all that the scriptures have taught, all that the scriptures said about him? See, here's what we've got today. We have the same verse, and not only do Christians, modern day Christians, American Christians at least, not only are we, do we have all kinds of resources, right? Digital Bibles, paper Bibles, multiple translations, translations in all languages. If you were born and your first language was Tagalog or or Spanish or something else, we have translations, right? We have everything we need, and yet we are some of the most biblically illiterate Christians in history, especially since the Enlightenment. And, And here they are, kind of in the same boat. They have got all the scriptures of God that point to Jesus, but they're unfamiliar with them. And so their expectations and their understandings are wrong. Their conclusions are wrong. Their beliefs are wrong. They believed in Jesus, which was right, but their understanding of who Jesus is was wrong. And so when He dies, they're shook. Their faith is now just, okay, it's taken away. That was one of the things we saw with with COVID. when, When you took away some of the Sunday gathering, or you kind of diminished what kind of connectivity people could have, especially around the church. We saw a shake in people's faith, right? An unhealthy disturbance in people's faith. And we saw people then leave and turn to politics because that was still ever present. But because we don't understand, like we just spent the last few months in Revelation, understanding that there will be persecution, right? There will be suffering. Even if it's not targeted at you, there will be hard seasons of life that the call is to endure. The call is to be a light to the world around you, to be strength in a broken world. Well, we shook all that up. And so people turned to something else. Oh foolish ones, O slow of heart to believe, all that the prophets have spoken. Verse 26, was it not necessary, now a question from scripture he's asking, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory, suffer death and resurrect? Was that not written? Was it not necessary? Verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, not just a couple places, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So Jesus takes them back, to the stories of Scripture, the narratives of Scripture, the history of Scripture, the, the wisdom and poetry of Scripture, the prophets of Scripture, all of it, and explained how all of the Scriptures point to him. How they come to, in fact, all of the Old Testament basically comes to fruition in him. There's a couple of rare exceptions that the Old Testament where it speaks about eternity. And obviously that speaks to a time that is included in Christ, but has not been fulfilled yet. But 99% of everything has already been completed in Christ. And he goes back and he just kind of starting from the beginning. It feels like he just kind of works his way forward, how it's all pointing to him. So here's a note for you. All Scripture points to Jesus. Jesus teaches that the entire Old Testament points to Him. To reject or to ignore this is to reject or ignore the teaching of Jesus that all Scripture points to Christ. So to ignore the first two-thirds of your Bible is to ignore Him. And to reject that or to treat like, oh, the God of the Old Testament is angry, but I like the more Santa Claus version in the New Testament, is to reject Jesus. And it's fundamentally just to misunderstand, I would say, the Old Testament. Some see an angry God. I see an incredibly patient God putting up with a lot, which is good because I give him effort, right? I, I mean, I make God work sometimes, I'm sure. And so to disconnect these things as if they're two stories is to reject the teaching of Jesus. To ignore them, because they don't relate, is to not only reject Jesus, but to misunderstand him. Verse 28, so they drew near to the village to which they were going, and they acted as if they were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us, for it's toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went to stay with them, and when he was at a table with them, I love this. When he was at a table with them, he took the bread, and he blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. And their eyes were open and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. Listen to this Jesus took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were open and they recognized him. Jesus serves them the bread of communion. Jesus sits at the table and breaks the bread and, serve, and they see him. You see, we, we have a, a worship gathering of, of word and sacrament that we have things that reveal jesus to us we have scripture that preaches christ that all of scripture preaches christ to us and then we have christ made visible in the sacrament of communion that jesus reveals himself through the sacraments the two baptism and communion Historically, the church has always said, listen, it's a true church. If it has the right preaching of the word, the pure administration of the sacraments and some form of church discipline, that's historically what it means to be a church. Yes, we sing. Yes, we pray, but word and sacrament is where Christ is revealed. See, our prayers and our songs are us responding to that. That God calls us to worship. So we do. That God invites us into a dialogue, a conversation, a prayer. And so we converse with God. But then we sit and we open our Bibles and we take out our notes and we listen to Jesus preached in the Word. And then we see Jesus in the sacrament. So here's a note for you. Why regular communion is necessary. See, communion in our gatherings is a visible reminder of what Christ has done and proclaims our commitment to Him. Done correctly, it is a means of grace that strengthens the body of the church. Well, I'm going to leave that up there for just a minute. And by me, I mean, Ashley, will you please leave that up there for just a minute? Because I have no control. When I say this, that it proclaims, it's a reminder of what Christ has done. And it proclaims our commitment to him. That's why we, the term that we use in church, or theologians use, or, or uh, pastors use, or kind of fence the table, is we, we say who this is for and who it's not for. We say this table, this sacrament, communion, are for those who are walking with Christ. For believers, whether you're a member of this church, or maybe a member of a different church that preaches the same gospel, right? Or not a member yet, or whatever right? But that you are actively walking. You're not living in disobedience to Christ. You're not harboring resentment and, and unforgiveness to people. And, and you're, you're living in repentance to Jesus. Now, no one's perfect, right? We all have sin, but are we actively ignoring Jesus? And, and first Corinthians 11 expands on this. And it says these words, I'm not going to expand on them, but I am going to say this. It says when they're doing it wrong, it says, no wonder some of you have gotten sick and even died. Because of how you're doing communion. Now nowhere else in scripture does it say that. But it says it there. So I won't take it any farther than the fact that the apostle Paul gives a weight to doing communion appropriately. That's why I explain it every time. And we say who it's for every time. And we let you know. And then, and then you just say, okay, am I living in repentance? Have I been baptized? Have I been, uh, that I've been called to? Am I committed and engaged to a local church? When I get up every day, I try and make this as simple as possible. When I get up every day, is Jesus on top of my list of to-dos? Like, I need to be with Jesus today. I need to follow Jesus today. I need to seek Jesus today. Well, if that's you, the table's for you. See, if any of those things are out of place, then it's a time that we just need to talk. Because it's also an invitation to repentance. So done right, it's a means of Grace. And a covenanting together. Jesus says this is a new covenant in my blood. We partner together as a church. That's why the local church body is so important. There are many local church bodies. right? This is ours. We love other church bodies. We just prayed for one just earlier in this service. We pray for many. We love them. But we covenant together. And communion is where we renew that covenant. We begin that with baptism. We renew that covenant each week in communion. And the reason we do it weekly is because people see Jesus in communion. And so it is a regular means of grace to the church. Rare is the occasion where we skip that sacrament. Often it's to do the other one, baptism. Verse 32, back in Luke 24. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn with us while he talked with us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Like we had a feeling, as we were talking about Scripture pointing to the Savior, we had something stirring in us. Then when he broke the bread, we're like, "I get it. That's him. That's Jesus, he's alive. Scripture said he would be. He's alive. I love that it's not. They're not just convinced from Scripture. they see him in communion. Didn't our hearts burn? Now, remember, Jesus only has the Old Testaments to teach them from at this point, right? All the New Testament will be written about this and after this. So all those first 39 books, the so first two-thirds of your Bible, that's what he's saying. All of this points to me. Verse 33, and they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together. So now they find the 11 that we end up calling apostles saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Notice it again, right? He's appeared to us. He also, seen between their returning now to Jerusalem, he also appears to Simon, who's Peter, right? Who's been wandered away. But he says, he's appeared to us and, it's that last line, he was made known to them in the breaking of bread how the sacrament makes Christ known to us, right? He showed us himself, he taught us, and then we saw him in communion, in the Lord's Supper. Here's another note for you, word and sacrament. Jesus shows us why we prioritize preaching and communion in our gatherings. We seek God in worship and prayer. We proclaim Christ in word and sacrament, and we are sent out by the Spirit on mission, empowered By our gathered time. We value the Lord's day service. It isn't just something we do when convenient. But this is the thing we orient our weeks around. Because around this, this is what strengthens us for the mission ahead of us. Because apart from this, we are left like a, a, a dead battery spiritually. Like a light that's faded. Like a candle that's burning out. But communion and, and the word and the worship and the prayer and the sending and the blessing, that, that fires us back up that we can get through Monday, Tuesday, and gather again on Wednesday. Because let's face it, we need it a lot. But we prioritize the gathered church. Because that's where we get to hear the word preached and take the sacrament. That we are a church of word and sacrament. That will come up in our new city catechism. By the way, catechism... This is a fancy term that means memorization, right? That you learn by memorizing. It's the same way that most of you learned your multiplication table, right? That you know nine times nine is 81 off the top of your head because you remembered it when you were back in elementary school. That's catechizing. That's teaching you to memorize what is nine times nine, 81. Okay. What is our only comfort in life and death? That we are not our own, but belong both body and soul and life and death to God and to our savior, Jesus Christ. We memorize what's true. So then when we need it, like when we're doing math and you need the answer, so when we need it, like life, we have the answer. And it's how we learn to disciple our children. Because in learning, you have to learn why that's important. And then you need to help memorize it with your children and teach it to them. This started about 10 months ago when I realized I've been calling parents to disciple their children and have never partnered with them to do so. I've been saying it's not my job, it's your job to disciple your kids. But I never and I said, yeah, and, and that's our job is to, to partner with you. And I thought, well, how are we partnering with them? Fast forward 10 months, we got a family's pastor, a Wednesday night service. We're learning a catechism together. We've been resourcing this one thing with specific focus. We started this year off January 8th, standing right here telling you this is what we're leaning into. This is why it's so important that if you're a senior, or a college student who's single, or a a family without kids, or a family with grown kids. That's why it's so important that you come on Wednesdays. Because we're creating a family, and that our family wraps around our kids. Right? That we partner with you, we partner together as a family, a church. Verse 36, it says, as they were talking about these things, back in Luke. Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened, and thought they saw a spirit. You know, with all these proofs, they still don't get it. And, and I, I want to sympathize, because this is a unique thing, right? This is a one-off story. This is a one-off event in history that just doesn't happen. And so, of course, they're a little caught off guard. So Jesus shows up. Jesus appears. But these proofs are also fighting something within them. It's all their preconceived ideas of what the Savior, Jesus, was supposed to be. And when he wasn't that, their categories are broken. So in 2 Timothy, it says this, All scriptures is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training and righteousness. The man of God, or the child of God, or woman of God, may be completely equipped for every good work. The Scripture exists to course-correct. Then when our view of things is off, Scripture puts it on. Right? When we believe something is not true, Scripture, not me, not the elders, God bless them, right? Not your buddy, Scripture. Scripture is what course corrects us, right? It's why we need the mature in the church, those who are mature in their faith, so they can help us with Scripture. Right? So they can take us to those places so that we don't have that moment like, well, I think you should do this. Well, let's be honest, who cares? I want to know, like, what does Jesus think I should be doing? Because that's trusted and tried, and (laughs) as of yet, always been true, right? Much as I've tried the opposite direction, so far, Jesus has always been right. So all Scripture corrects, we'll put a note on the screen, our wrong desires and beliefs shape our view of Jesus, making Jesus into what we want rather than what we need. Now, that'll preach. I like that. I wrote it, and I still like it. Making Jesus into what we want rather than what we need. Having only part of the message, meaning having a New Testament understanding, leaves us uninformed or wrongly informed. Not having the complete story, and I'm going to say it again, the first two-thirds matter. That's all Jesus had, and that was enough for him to preach his death and resurrection, his life, his meaning, his purpose, the gospel, the kingdom. Because it's there. Verse 38. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while well, they still disbelieved for joy, were marveling. I don't even understand that phrase. Disbelieve for joy, were marveling. I don't even know. I think they're learning and not getting it and are hopeful and still curious, right? I think it's a collection of things there. He says to him, Do you have anything to eat? I love that. Well, probably why I'm fat. They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took an ate before them. He shows him I'm human, I'm alive. I'm not just this dead version of me, kind of a peer, I'm alive. Alive eternally. See, we miss this. We we think Jesus, okay, Jesus rose from the dead back here. No, he's alive today. Yes, ascended. Yes, glorified. Yes, seated on the throne. Yes, the lamb who has been slain, looking has been slain, right? The, the root of David, the line of Judah, all those things that we saw. The rider on the white horse coming to conquer and conquering all. But he's alive. And that's what matters in this. And so they give him food. He eats, verse 44, and he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything, listen, everything written about me in the law, Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. He gives the three major categories, law, prophets, and wisdom, or Psalms, right? He gives the three, all, all of this points to me. So here's a note that's going to lead into our series starting next week on Father's Day, the minor prophets. In our summer series, we want to keep in focus that Jesus teaches that all the scriptures point to him. The minor prophets point us to Jesus. The minor prophets point us to Jesus. Right? These 12 books are going to talk to Israel and Judah. At one point, Nineveh and the Edomites. They're going to talk to these people groups, some of them we never even heard of. In places that aren't named the same things anymore. In cultures that are fundamentally different. They point to Jesus. They proclaim Christ to come. They teach us about Jesus. Some written almost three thousand years ago, some about twenty four hundred years ago. All pointing to Christ. Verse forty five: When he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures, again to understand the Old Testament. Verse forty six: And he said to them, "Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem." What does he do? He opens their minds to understand the Scriptures. He doesn't need to add to it. He just says, listen, here's what it says. Here's what it means. We've always had this message. Yes, his teachings in the gospel and his life, his ministry will be canonized in, in the first four books of the New Testament. And then those he sends out, including Paul, who will come along in Acts 9, kind of fulfilling that 12th apostle. They will go out and gospelize the first century. They will evangelize the modern world and plant and establish churches. And yes, they will write letters that we have calling our New Testament. But a smaller segment than the Old Testament, if we ignore this, we're ignoring Jesus. And if we miss this, we've missed a part of the message. And the modern day church likes to stay over here. But we have the entire thing. And Jesus exclusively used the Old Testament to point to him. And revealed how they all point to him. I love how it says, thus it is written... That Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. So the Old Testament says this, he says, right? And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name. See, if you're here today and you heard that caution, that warning about the sacrament of communion. If you're here and you're not living as Jesus has called you to live and you know you're not doing it. And you hear that. Here's what you need to hear. That repentance and forgiveness come in Christ. Right? That you can be. Repent, that you can be forgiven. The ball is in your court. Right? Jesus has done everything necessary for your salvation. That you must repent and walk in. That you must be baptized. That you must be a part of a local church. There's no faithful Christianity apart from a commitment to a local church. and not how it's built. You can't live faithfully in Christ apart from a body you're committed to. Because it takes all of us to knock all the rough edges off and to gather, to worship corporately, to gather, to do communion. There's no communion. It's built in the Word. There's no communion apart from a local church gathering. It's about communing together. That you are baptized into a local church upon repentance of sin you're old enough to hear that message and, and you're repentant of sin and you're, you're, you say you profess to be walking with Christ, then, then baptism should be your first step of repentance. And you should walk in that. You should become a part of a church that you get to take the sacrament, a means of grace, of strength. But it, it, it requires not just belief, but repentance. And that pr- repentance is provided in Christ in the forgiveness of sin. And that that has always been the message that Jesus comes and fulfills the message. And then we get a bunch of authors that expand on the message. And for the most part, teach us how life in Christ transforms us. That we can no longer be what we once were, but now what Christ has made us. That we have been given new life. That we are new in Christ. And so for you, if you are here and you would consider yourself a mature Christian, this has nothing to do with your age. However, if you've been walking with Jesus for decades, this should be true of you. But for those of, that we would call the mature in faith, if, if you can take the Old Testament, the first 39 books of the Bible, from Moses all the way through to Malachi, from Genesis to Malachi, if you can, if you can take and open those up and you can see Jesus in the passage without doing damage to the text, it's a big if, right? If you can make that, that straight line to Jesus in the text without doing damage to it, we'll call that mature, at least an understanding. Then what we need is you to wrap around those who are less mature, those who don't have that understanding. Now what's critical is maturity of understanding must, must be met with maturity of life so that we don't disqualify our own message. And for the immature of faith, for those who are... And when I say immature, it sounds like a a put-down, but it could be new. It could be unlearned yet. For you, being a part of a Bible-preaching church is critical. But more importantly, being around Christians who understand and can help you see Jesus in all things, that's what we need. That's why we commit ourselves to a local body. Because in that, we can learn and grow and be known. And if you are not yet in Christ or have walked away, repentance and forgiveness come in Him. And today is the day of salvation. Today is the day where you can lay down your sin and confess, I need you, Jesus, more than ever. That I need you to not only just forgive me, but change me. Repentance and forgiveness are found in Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. For those that are here that have been walking with you for a long time but don't understand this, may they lean in. For those of you, for those of us, Lord, here that can find you in Scripture, helps us to not hold that to ourselves but pass it on. For those of us here, Lord, that, that don't know how to do, that can't see, that are new to this or, or maybe just unlearned and think, oh, the Old Testament is like stories about David and Moses and Abraham, it's, but it's not about you. It will help us to Submit to biblical teaching. And most importantly, today is the day of repentance and forgiveness. As you always say, Jesus, today is the day of salvation. Because tomorrow is not guaranteed. So may those who have never come to you, or those who have wandered away, may they come today repentant. Sorrowful for their sin and, and, and joyful for, for you being the answer to our brokenness. May they draw that line that they step over and recognize what you're doing in their lives. Help us the church to wrap around them, all of them, young, old, non-believer, wandered away, whatever it may be. Help us as a church to wrap around one another. As your word says, that we might grow in faith and unity. That we might be such a light here in Cerritos that others meet you because of us. Jesus, be that within us. Help us to be that in you. That your name may be famous. That you may be held high. And so it's in your name we pray. Amen. Each week as we come to the table... As we have communion, our elders, their wives serve us. The meaning, as we just talked a little bit about, as Jesus, the last week of his life, takes bread and asks God to bless it and breaks it. He says, this is my body broken for you. And then he says, this cup, this is, my, this is a covenant, a promise in my blood for the forgiveness of your sins. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. That same church that Paul preaches those very strong words to in the letter of 1 Corinthians, in chapter 11, he says, as often as you eat of the bread or drink of the cup, you are proclaiming Christ until he returns. And so we see Jesus made visible in the bread and the cup. And so I'm going to invite you, would you come forward? Pastor John or John and Jana over here, would you come and receive the elements? If that's you, if you're walking with Jesus, if you are living obediently to Jesus and willing to come forward, will you come forward? As you're doing so, will you take those words seriously? and said, listen, that we just don't do this, but we do this contemplatively, that we consider our lives as we come to it. No one is perfect. Repentance, not perfection. Repentance is the key. That forgiveness is given. Will you come and then return with the elements and we will take this together as a family. Come. This moment of quiet in fact the very reason we took this outside of it being done during a song is that we would have this moment of reflection that we would never take this means of grace this sacrament or this moment where heaven and earth collide where we would never do so without considering the moment that we would have time to reflect time to repent again we never come perfect where is our heart are we withholding forgiveness from people are we are we coming with sin that we're not willing to turn over to god are we are we showing up and giving only a portion of ourselves when jesus calls us to give everything so i'm going to pray and we'll we'll take this together together As a family, even if you're a a guest here today or part of another local church, we're a family in Christ and we need to celebrate Christ together. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you as you came and entered into humanity. A step down is an understatement that you came and gave yourself, all of yourself for us. You didn't come halfway. You didn't come and live in a palace with wealth You came all the way. You lived in poverty. You lived this life. You endured temptation and pain and loneliness and and hunger and and all that we endure. You, You were betrayed by someone near and dear to you. You then gave your life by taking our penalty on your body and on the cross that we might be able to stand here because of you. You didn't end there, but you you died. You remained dead. Your body lay in a tomb for three days. So that the scriptures could be fulfilled in you. Making you God in human flesh. And then in your resurrection, you give us new life. A life we cannot have apart from you. A life indwelled by your spirit. A life with great hope that one day when you make everything right, we are with you. And we're not with you because of anything we did, but because of what you did. And so we're reminded and we see you in communion. So just as you did, you broke the bread and you asked the Father to bless it. And so too, we, Father, ask that you would bless this for us. We don't need it to turn into anything or any kind of mystery. We just need you to bless this, that we would understand Christ's brokenness provides wholeness for us in life. Church, take the bread. Jesus, just as you held the cup, we asked the Father, Father, would you bless the cup? You proclaimed a covenant. The strongest language you could use is a guarantee, a promise to us that is secured by your own blood that our sins, if we are in you, our sins are forgiven. So when we take this cup, we remember that we are not only to be repentant, but made new in you. We are not defined by our worst decisions, our past. We are defined by your victory and resurrection and life. Church, take the cup. And we remember the words that as often as we eat of bread or drink the cup, we proclaim you, Jesus, until you return. So it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Church, will you stand together as we get to sing songs again proclaiming God's goodness? We've heard His Word. We've seen Him in the sacrament. We share in those prayers and songs together. Will you stand? Will you join us?